Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. Uh, this is Roman. It's Friday, September 14th. I wanted to start off the show by taking a moment. It's uh, Time for Black Trans Women. It's an event that was created. It's a Time for Black Trans Women National Moment of Silence and Action. And it's taking place starting at noon. It's a few moments ago. Um, Pacific time here. And there have been many, many people who have been killed this year and in previous years. And this is an action uh, hosted by the Transgender Law Center just to bring attention to that and to name the, the name of the folks who have been killed this year so far. So I'll read a little bit uh, about the event itself and then uh, share the names of people that we've lost. Uh, this week, we learned that London Moore Kennard, a 20-year-old black trans woman, was murdered in Northport, Florida. In just the last two weeks, four young black trans women have been violently taken from us. Of the last eight known homicides of transgender people, all eight have been black trans women. Of the 20 known homicides of transgender people in the U.S. this year, 14 have been black trans women. We are calling for people across the country to join us in a national moment of silence and action on Friday at noon Pacific time. Go outside with your friends, loved ones, classmates, and coworkers. Say the names of the black trans women we've lost this year. Hold a moment of silence and demand action for black trans lives. So I'm going to read names of some of the folks that we've lost this year. The Advocate recently posted information or shared information about some of these people. And something else that happens that folks might not be aware of is that oftentimes when people are, are killed, uh, the media and the news outlets and the police misgender people. So it's adding insult to injury. And so it's really crucial that loved ones, people who are actually connected to the people who have been lost are are contacted and, and are allowed to to tell the story instead of again folks who don't know folks who are transphobic or homophobic not knowing and dead naming people and misgendering them so i'm going to read the the list here of trans folks who are killed in 2018. Uh, Krista Lee Steele-Nudeslian, Vicky Gutierrez, Zakaria Fry, Celine Walker, Tanya Harvey, Felicia Mitchell, Amia Tyree Teray, Berryman, Sasha Wall, Carla Patricia Flores Pavon, Nino Fortson, who's a transgender man, Gigi Pierce, and Tasha English, Diamond Stevens, Catalina Christina James, Keisha Wells, Sasha Garden, Dejanay Stanton, Vantasia Bell, Shanti Tucker, and London Moore.
So I'll take another moment of silence. And again, advocating for, for cis folks especially to have conversations with people who in your life who may be transphobic, say things, even things that appear to be jokes that, or untruths. And it goes beyond transphobia. And it's misogyny and it's white supremacy when we see the folks who have been killed. We'll take a moment of silence and be back in a bit. Estrella 
el canto tiene sentido cuando palpiten las venas del que morirá cantando las verdades verdaderas no las lisonjas fugaces ni las famas extranjeras sino el canto de una lonja hasta el fondo de la tierra
vientos del pueblo me llaman, vientos del pueblo me llevan, me esparcen el corazón y me aventan la garganta, así cantar al poeta mientras el alma me suene por los caminos del pueblo desde ahora y para siempre. And welcome back to the Weekly Review. That was Victor Yara. <sighs> and uh, September 11th happened. It happens every year. It's a date in the calendar that we all kind of use. Not all. Here. Uh, it's. Uh, I'm having a rough morning. Am I? I said so, so it must be true, right? So... Something I learned about very recently, of course, was the uh, the coup in Chile from in 1973, which happened on September 11th, and that was they had democratically elected a Marxist leader, and the powers that be, the CIA included, did not want that to happen. They were, I believe, <sighs> looking to make sure folks had access to the land and access to copper as well as other goods that were in Chile, and folks who profit off of those things were not that into it. There was issues with the military, etc. cetera. Uh, that's a very super abridged version. And I'm going to play some more. <laughs> I'm going to play some uh, audio clips that delve more into this. But this is something that I never really learned until the last few years. And I'm still learning a lot of things that were not taught here in history class. And every now and then, which is more often than I would like, I get into a conversation almost arguments with people who say, oh, socialism can't work and it doesn't work. What are some examples? And, you know, it'd be great if we had more examples. However, uh, this country, the government here seems to, and the military seems to want to invest in, you know, squashing oh, socialist leaders. And I also recognize that some folks tend to believe that you can't really vote, you know, you can't really vote out capitalism. It's not something that is is possible so yeah, i do understand that point of view as well and um i think perhaps part, part of the one, one of the one of those reasons is that even if you democratically elect people uh it's difficult for folks to stay in positions of power because capitalists are so greedy that they want their empire to sustain itself and will do whatever it takes to make that happen so even if you vote someone in there's no <sighs> it's not easy for them to accomplish what they would and they as a whole, you know, <sighs> yeah. So anyway, that happened in 1973. And when we think about things that happened here uh, in the U S 17 years ago, it's also important to remember what else has happened and what else this country has been a part of in, in its history. And, after Pinochet took power, thousands of people were tortured and killed, and he remained in power until like 1990, so that was 17 years. So imagine, as long as it's been now, since September 11, 2001 here, imagine that stretch of time of having a dictator in charge. And Victor Yara, the musician, the beautiful folk singer musician that I played these, these two songs to begin the show with, he was one of the people who was tortured and killed in Chile. 
there's a story in Democracy Now. Uh, I was interested in playing that. Talked about the the folks who killed him were finally brought to justice. You know, many many years later. <sighs> and so there's an army officer who was found liable, and this you know this happened in in 2016. So it's many many years after the fact. And the person who was responsible for, for killing him uh, lived in the United States for 40, more than 40 years. Oh, goodness. I'm gonna, so I'm gonna start off by playing an interview with Yara's uh, widow, Joan. And Joan talks a little bit about the circumstances. And again, there's a lot to learn where we're not necessarily taught a lot about this. And there's a film that was made in 1982 called Missing that um, is about, there's an American journalist who was down there who was killed, kidnapped and killed. And it's about his father who goes down to investigate what happened and the U.S. government not being very cooperative. So that's something else to you know recommend that folks can check out. Ah, goodness. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and stop. Well, I'm not going to stop sighing. I'll probably be sighing for the next hour and 45 minutes. However, (laughs) uh, I will play this piece from Democracy Now! This is, again, from 2016. And this deals with the, the army officer, the former Chilean army officer who was found liable for the 1973 murder of Victor Yara after the U.S. backed coup. And we'll be playing some more audio clips throughout the program as well as updating with some more recent news as well thanks so much for listening and uh yeah stay tuned and if folks would like to follow along at home if you have access to if you're listening access i imagine you are listening online you can also check out the video here at if you go to democracynow.org and this came out in uh, again 2016 this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In Florida, a jury has found former Chilean Army officer Pedro Barrientos liable for the murder of legendary folk singer and activist Victor Jara in September 1973. In the days after dictator Augusto Pinochet seized power in a U.S.-backed coup, Victor Jara was rounded up, tortured and shot more than 40 times. In 2013, on the 40th anniversary of Victor Jara's murder, his wife and daughters filed a civil lawsuit in U.S. court against the former military officer, Pedro Barrientos, who has lived in the United States for more than two decades and is now a U.S. citizen. The Jara sued him under a federal civil statute known as the Torture Victims Protection Act, which allows U.S. courts to hear about human rights abuses committed abroad. Chilean prosecutors have indicted Barrientos and another officer with Jara's murder, and Chile is seeking his extradition so he can be tried on criminal murder charges. Well, in a landmark legal victory Monday, an Orlando court ruled Barrientos is liable for the killing of Victor Jara and awarded the Jara family $28 million in damages. 
The Guardian newspaper called the verdict, quote, one of the biggest and most significant legal human rights victories against a foreign war criminal in a U.S. courtroom, unquote. In a moment, we'll be joined by Victor Hada's daughter and widow Joan. But first, I want to turn to our 2013 interview with Joan Hada, talking about the day Victor disappeared. Oh, we were both at home with our two daughters. Uh, there was somehow um, a coup in the air. Uh, we had been fearing that there might be a military coup. Uh, on, on that morning, uh, together, Victor and I listened to Allende's last speech and heard all the radios the, who supported Salvador Allende falling off the air, I see, one by one and being replaced by military marches. Victor was due to go to the technical university, his place of work, where Allende was due to speak to announce a plebiscite at 11 o'clock. And Victor uh, was to sing there, as he did. And he went out that morning. It was the last time I saw him. I, I stayed at home, heard of the the bombing of the Moneda Palace, heard and saw the helicopters machine gun firing over Allende's residence, and then began the long wait for Victor to come back home. And how long did you wait? I waited a week. Uh, not knowing really what had happened to him. I got a message from him, from somebody who had been in the stadium with him. Wasn't sure what was really happening to him, uh, but my fears were confirmed on the 11th of September. On the, I'm sorry, on the 18th of September, Chile National Day, when a young man came to my house, uh, said, Please, I need to talk to you. I'm a friend. I've been working in the city morgue. And I'm afraid to tell you that Victor's body has been recognized because it was a well-known face. was a well-known face. And he said, you must come with me and claim his body. Otherwise, they will put him in a common grave and he will disappear. So then I accompanied this young man to the city morgue. We entered by a side entrance. I saw the hundreds of bodies, literally hundreds of bodies that were high, piled up in, in what was actually the parking place, I think, of the, of the morgue. And I had to look for Victor's body among a long line in the offices of the city morgue. Recognized him. I saw what had happened to him. I saw the bullet wounds. I saw the state of his body, and I consider myself one of the lucky ones in the sense that I had to face at that moment that what had happened to Victor, and I could give my testimony with all the force of what I felt in that moment, and not that horror, which is much worse, of never knowing what happened to your loved one, uh, as a papa happened to so many families, so many women who have spent these 40 years looking for their, their loved ones who were made to disappear.
That's Victor Hara's widow, Joan Hara, speaking in 2013 on Democracy Now! She joins us live now from Orlando, Florida, along with Victor Hara's daughter, Manuela Bunster. And in San Francisco, we're joined by Dixon Osborne, executive director of the Center for Justice and Accountability, the law firm that represented the Hara family. Joan, let's begin with you. Your reaction on Monday to the court decision? Well, it was almost incredible. Uh, Joan, uh, if you could respond to the decision uh, in the court on Monday. Yes. Uh, well, I can only say it was with uh, happiness, the incredulity, Cassie, but we, we've lived with all these years with gradually losing more and more the hope of justice for Victor. It was wonderful here in the United States, in an American court, to, to find this unanimous verdict. And uh, Manuela Bunster, you, uh, your reaction after so many years of finding some measure—not full measure, but some measure of recognition and justice for what happened to your father? Uh, well, as, as Joan says, um, it's—I uh, think—I mean, for us, it's still difficult to way, really, uh, how this is going to uh, uh, affect our lives in the future, because, I mean, we've lived with the sense of impunity and a, a, a pain within, you know, in relation to the, the not, know it, not knowing the truth uh, of, of what happened with Victor. And, and so it's been—we're um, still— I mean, we're happy but calm because also, I mean, there's a lot to do still, you know, in relation to justice for Victor and for other victims of the stadium. But, you know, we, we received it. Um, we're very grateful, really. Joan Hara, mm -hmm. how did you learn that it was Barrientos who was responsible for your husband for Victor Hara's murder? right in the midst of the coup of September 11th, 1973, in Chile? Yes, well, I, it has been only gradually. And uh, during this trial, I, I learned many things about what happened in the stadium, and that in itself is uh, a wonderful progress to, uh, to justice in Chile. Because other people will be able to find a certain uh, amount of justice for their, their, their loved ones who were killed there. But uh, I, I must say that during the trial, there was so much evidence uh, against Barrientos so much evidence and so much lying on, on the part of uh, the people who were defending him and the witnesses. I mean, incredible, just, just easily proved mm. lies, uh, which were quickly dis dismissed and overcome by our, our 
lawyers, our wonderful lawyers. Well, he's been, Barrientos, uh, we've known about him for years now, around seven years, I should say. Um, many conscripts have, uh, I mean, he's been denying having been in Chile stadiums and he's been, you know, uh, um, um, the evidence presented in this, in, in, in this uh, trial and also all the previous investigations that have been going on in Chile have put them in the stadium with a command responsibility in the stadium. Uh, and this has been confirmed, you know, um, and, um, and no officers who have command responsibility in a situation like that during that week, uh, 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 that, that specific week, you know, uh, uh, just after the coup in Chile, uh, be, uh, can say uh, they, they didn't know anything. Uh, and that they, I mean, they've been uh, constantly denying everything, you know, that happened in the stadium. And also, basically, he's been denying having even been there in that week. Well, we're also joined by Dixon Osborne, the executive director of the Center for Justice and Accountability, who tried the case against uh, Pedro Barrientos. Uh, Dixon Osborne, could you tell us who was Barrientos, what was his role, uh, and, uh, and what were you able to establish uh, in the trial? Yes, and good morning. Uh, Barrientos was a former lieutenant under Pinochet, and what uh, what we were able to show in the court uh, was in direct contradiction to what Barrientos claimed, which is that he didn't know Victor Jara, that he had never been in the stadium. We had one of the conscripts who testified very chillingly that Barrientos bragged not just once but many times that he's the one who shot and killed Victor Jara. We had other conscripts who identified Barrientos as being in Chile Stadium and having command responsibility there, uh, performing a wide variety of duties and, therefore, having responsibility over the events at Chile Stadium. We had uh, civilians. Uh, we had a, a former student uh, from the university where Victor taught, who identified uh, that Victor was uh, assaulted, beaten badly at the university when the military laid siege to it. And we had another witness who identified Victor's body tossed outside of Chile Stadium. Uh, uh, so, through and through, we presented more than a dozen witnesses and significant evidence of what transpired in the days following the Pinochet coup, and specifically what happened to Victor Jara. You know, in 2012, I got a chance to travel to Spain and interview Francisco Estebedia, the forensic specialist who exhumed the bodies of both ousted President Salvador Allende of Chile and singer Victor Jara to determine the nature of these deaths. Um, I asked him to tell us what he discovered about Victor Jara's murder. What happened in the case of Victor Jara is that he was at a university in Santiago, arrested there, and witnesses confirmed that. Then we believe he was brought into a locker room. The military knew who he was. He was a popular person. He ended up with a single bullet wound through the back of the head. 
and with over 50 broken bones throughout his body that we determined were caused by what looked like machine gun fire. After he died, they fired many, many shots at him and then dragged the body out into the streets where people would find it and think perhaps that it had been a gunfight between the authorities and others. What happened to Victor Hara is similar to what happened to other people who disappeared in that period of time. The bodies were found on the streets and brought into the morgue where they were identified. This was very common at the early stages of the dictatorship. Later, probably due to their international political reputation, the disappeared were still being killed, but the bodies were hidden in mass graves, mines, throwing them into the sea and other places. That was Francisco Echeverria, the forensic specialist who exhumed the bodies of both uh, uh, Salvador Allende, the president who died in the palace September 11, 1973, and Victor Hara. Dixon Osborne, can you talk about how significant this case is in Florida and what will happen to Barrientos? It's a very significant case. This is the first time that the Hara families had their day in court, and uh, for a court, uh, a jury of six individuals was able to find somebody liable and responsible for the torture and murder of Victor Hara. Uh, I think this is not only significant for the family, as they have said, but uh, for so many uh, victims and survivors who are continuing to look for truth and justice in what happened under the Pinochet coup. Uh, what happens next for, for Barrientos? No, this was a civil lawsuit. It's not a criminal lawsuit. What the jury found is that he was liable, uh, and they awarded damages. Uh, the next step will be to enforce that judgment uh, to the extent that we can. But what about the criminal case in Chile? If Chile has been seeking his extradition, why has the U.S. government not uh, extradited him? That's a good question for the U.S. government. No, we certainly urge the U.S. government to move forward with extradition at this point. Uh, as you correctly noted, Chile has indicted him. They've requested it. The U.S. government has moved forward on other extradition requests. Uh, so we hope that the U.S. government will take this request very seriously and move forward. And, Joan Hada, what is your next plan as you head back to Chile? Well, to go on as one has been going for 40 years is to seek justice for all the victims. I mean, th this trial has revealed in a, a very special way what has been hidden for years, because there has been a veil over the history of what happened in the Chile Stadium. And it is our job to force this or the request and to get together with the relatives of other victims to continue the search for justice for, for all and to know from moment to moment what happened in the stadium. It well, has been, ex yeah, it's been extraordinary how all this has been hidden for so long, you know. Well, Joan Hara and Manuela Bunster, uh, thank you so much for being with us, joining us for our, from Orlando, where the decision was handed down on Monday, responsibility for the death of your husband, your father, Victor Hara. And Dixon Osborne, thanks so much for joining us from the Center for Justice and Accountability in San Francisco. When we come back— Okay. 
So with that, uh, I'm going to play some more music from Victor Hara. And we'll be back with some more news uh, after this. En mi pago hay un árbol que del olvido se llama Donde van a consolarse vidalita los moribundos del alma Para no pensar en vos, en el árbol del olvido, me acosté una nochecita, vidalita, y me quedé bien dormido. Al despertar de aquel sueño Pensaba en vos otra vez Pues me olvidé de olvidarte Vidalita En cuantito me acosté Victor Hara with uh, Cancion del Arbol del Olvido. <sighs> we take calls here at Weekly Review. If you have anything you'd like to share with us, please do give us a call. We're at 415-550-0511. Thanks again so much for listening and supporting independent media, radio, what, what this is. If you're interested in listening to previous podcasts, we have the archive up going back to 2015. So not all the way back, but uh, going back to 2015 at least. If you'd like to check that out, go to mutinyradio.fm. There's also so many other shows here on the station every day of the week. There's comedy, music, spoken word, lots of different programs. And if you yourself are interested in doing a program here, please check out mutinyradio.fm and get in contact with Pam, who's the station director, and just involves getting trained here um, on the equipment here in the studio. Uh, You pay monthly dues, and then you get a show of your own two hours a week. 
to do whatever you'd like, which is pretty cool and certainly hard to come by. So grateful for this space. And also if you're interested in doing a show here, we also do space rentals. So Saturday nights are open as well as many other nights of the week. Um, so please do check us out. Also, I believe on Wednesday nights, there's also like an AA meeting. So that's something else that, is, and it's of course not broadcast. I should say that it's not broadcast on the air. It's just a space is used for folks to meet, which is great. So if you're interested in uh, affordable space, uh, in San Francisco, uh, please do check us out. Also wanting to acknowledge that we're on Ohlone land and grateful to, to be here and recognizing the land that we're on. Oh, the more I learn about history, the more depressing it is and seeing how often folks have just keep on the, the, the repetition of violence and it's seriously disturbing. That doesn't make for a very happy radio program. However, I'd rather be depressing and truthful than happy and not. That's kind of where I'm at. Maybe you're that way as well. And we do find positive things. And I'll get to some positive stories. How about right now? I've got some other historical things to get to. Seeing that I'm like, oh, I didn't know that happened. That's depressing. Oh, oof. However, uh, I do want to talk about positive things that are happening too. Because uh, we have to. And that's also really important to recognize there are so many folks who have been doing and are doing a lot of really incredible work. Um, to make this world more just for people. So that's awesome, and that needs to be celebrated. Damn it. Okay. So this morning, I happened to find a story that was published uh, yesterday, on September 13th, uh, from Gay Star News. And this also uh, involves Chile, and it's trans people in Chile can now change their name and gender without surgery. And the bill passed 95 to 46. That's pretty great. That's super fucking awesome. So congratulations to folks there. And this article is written by uh, James Bessenville. Bessenvi. Uh, transgender people in Chile can now change their legal name and gender without having to go through surgery. The Chilean House of Deputies passed the gender identity bill yesterday, or two days ago, September 12th, with a vote of 95 to 46. It allows anyone over the age of 14. That's so much more. Okay. That's so good. I'm, I'm just like super grateful. And then also seeing where that's not the case. Anyway, I'm going to get through a positive story without getting frustrated that it's not as positive other places. It allows anyone over the age of 14 to self-identify their gender, but people 14 to 18 will need a consent from their parents. Oh, okay. I should have. Okay. It's okay. still all right. But people 14 to 18 years old will still need consent from their parents or legal guardians. President Sebastian Piñera must sign the bill into law within the next 30 days. He publicly supports the bill and is expected to do so. Trans advocacy group organizing trans divisidaries tweeted yesterday, Today, Chile takes a historic step forward in the inclusion of transgender identities. Now, let's now eradicate transphobia in schools, on the streets, and in workplaces. Today, it is everyone's responsibility to protect trans youth, they tweeted. They show a picture that's people celebrating, that's super sweet. Uh, that's great. And also in the article, Gay Star News also reached out to Chile's leading LGBTI organization. Uh, I'm going to see, make this a little bit larger so it's easier to read. Uh, Movil, it's M-O-V-I-L-H. And support for LGBTI rights skyrockets in Chile. Chileans overwhelmingly support LGBTI rights in the South American country. A recent survey found that 65% of Chileans above the age of 18 supported marriage equality. And that's a seven-point jump since February. On trans issues, 67% of people agreed a person should be able to transition without surgery or approval for a medical board. 
but only once they've changed their gender markers on official documents such as national ID, cards, and passports. More Chileans than ever also support the rights of same-sex couples to adopt children. A staggering 52% of people support same-sex adoption, which is 10 points higher than in February. Chile currently offers civil partnerships to same-sex couples. The previous president introduced a bill to legalize to legalize love. That's an interesting, okay, to legalize love. Uh, but the new Chilean president recently stated uh, legalizing same-sex marriage is not a priority. Hmm. A spokesperson for the 68-year-old politician said there is no commitment to take forward or lead a procedure regarding equal marriage. Hmm. Okay, so definitely needs... <sighs> yeah, well, okay. I'm not going to comment on that. Next up, folks are going on strike. That seems to be a recurring theme in the world. This is from the Fresno Bee, and this article came out on September 10th, written by Robert Rodriguez. Hundreds of sun-made workers go on strike over wages and benefits. Sun-made workers went on strike Monday afternoon after talks between the company and its workers broke down. About 250 workers were on the picket line near the plant's Kingsburg headquarters Monday afternoon, said Peter Nunez, president of Teamsters Local 431. It's unclear how long they will strike. The union said sun-made officials had been working on setting a new multi-year contract, but more than 500 workers rejected a minimal pay increase as well as the employees contributing to the company's high deductible health and welfare plan, according to the Teamsters Facebook page. Harry Overly, president of SunMade, said the union and the company went through multiple rounds of negotiation, having reached a tentative agreement on August 8th. Although endorsed by Teamsters leadership, the, te- the tentative agreement was voted down by union members on August 12th, Overly said. While the decision is unfortunate, SunMade has the right processes and contingency plans in place to meet demand and maintain a responsible business practice, Overly said. We know our customers, growers, and employers, employees may have questions, and we are actively engaging each of these groups around next steps. Earlier this year, a three-year labor contract between SunMade and the Teamsters Union expired. At issue for workers was maintaining their health care benefits at the same level as the previous contract. We have been incredibly proud that all employee contracts to date have included 100% medical Benefit coverage paid by SunMade overly said past contracts have even maintained this rare benefit, yet also provided year-over-year wage increases. The new contract includes multiple medical insurance options, increased year-over-year, market competitive wages, continued pension contributions, and increased premiums on high job classes to encourage our workforce to adopt opportunities and continually develop their skills for technical application. Overly whose background is in marketing and sales, was hired last year to help boost the company's national profile and its sales. For the first time in more than 10 years, SunMade will launch a national campaign next year focused on rekindling customers' fondness for the brand. Overly's goal is $100 million in growth over the next three to four years. SunMade plans to launch new products, new advertising, and an elevated presence in the grocery store. What? Anyway, they have a new... They have a... They have a, an image, they show an image of a new product, and I'm like, it's um, sun-made sour raisin snacks that are watermelon flavored. It says, sun-made will launch a new product, sour raisin snacks and watermelon and strawberry flavors. Wow. Okay. That's something. Um, but sending lots of, you know, love and solidarity to the folks on strike, workers fighting for what they need. Positive story, number 
three, I guess. It depends what we all consider. Well, who, anyway, next story. Let's try not to qualify things here. We know that there's there's a lot of different ways to go with things. All right, the Chronicle, which I know, the San Francisco Chronicle, eh, all right. However, um, some folks were posting this morning about this, which is good news. San Francisco's controversial early day statue taken down before sunrise. And this is written by Dominic fracasa and again this came out today more than 50 onlookers gathered on a dark chilly friday morning between san francisco's asian art museum and main library to witness the long-awaited removal of the deeply controversial early days sculpture the battle to get the bronze sculpture moved has been rolling for decades particularly among those of american indian heritage who were or indigenous one would say who were offended by what they saw as an offensive celebration of the subjugation of their people the 2000 pound statue offered little resistance as a crane hoisted it from its pedestal and gingerly placed it why not just fucking knock it down okay i'm not in construction i'm not anyway all right and ginger gingerly gingerly placed it why okay placed it on a flatbed flatbed truck around 5:30 a.m those who gathered to watch mostly indigenous folks i'm gonna change their language in the article uh softly sang traditional songs and burned bundles of sage they have a video here of it and it's just a video so there's not really much audio there uh the sculpture depicts a fallen nearly naked indigenous person lying at the feet of a vaquero and a missionary it's one of the five bronze sculptures that make up the pioneer monument an 800 ton shrine erected in 1894 to honor the settling of california get all of them eight gross okay the statue in plain sight of city hall will be put in a in fine art storage and the city arts commission will decide where it goes from there can we repurpose it can we melt it okay eventually it could leave San Francisco altogether. Alton Cummings, senior registrar of the city's civic art collection, said the commission had received interest about the statue from outside the city toward the end of last year. We haven't heard recent interest, but should a scenario present itself, and if the commission decides it's appropriate, it could be on the table, she told the Board of Appeals on Wednesday. Ah. Uh. I think we're witnessing a moment in history where, commendably, San Francisco officials are doing the right thing to help rectify the mistreatment of indigenous people, said Janine Antoine, a longtime Bay Area resident who is of Lakota heritage. To me, it's always symbolized the oppression and conquest of indigenous people. We're very happy this is finally happening after decades of work and struggle from the native community. Among those gathered was District 5 Supervisor Valley Brown, who is of American Indian heritage. There, that's the words in the article. It is very emotional for me. There are a lot of sins moving away with that statue, she said. Brown was among the dozens of people who urged the city's Board of Appeals to approve the statue's removal when when it met Wednesday evening. The board's vote that day formally authorized Friday's pre-dawn relocation. Back in April, the appeals board sided with Petaluma attorney Freer Stephen Schmid, who objected to decisions by the city's Art Commission and Historic Preservation Commission to take the statue down. The Arts Commission voted unanimously in October to remove early days, largely in response to a renewed public outcry following the volatile demonstration in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the site of a Confederate statue. That rally, which resulted in the death of a counter-protester, sparked a national discussion around removing historical monuments that to many glorify racial or cultural oppression. The Historic Preservation Commission blessed the proposal to take down the sculpture in February, provided that a plaque be put in its place explaining why it had been removed. 
Schmid appealed to that decision, claiming that it was inconsistent with the city standards for removing and altering historical historic artifacts. He also said that removing the statue and the historic lesson it can convey about the terrible events of the past was equivalent to destroying it, drawing comparisons to the destruction of art by the Nazis and the Taliban. But at Wednesday's hearing, representatives of both commissions clarified that they acted well within their rights under the city charter. Their arguments persuaded the Board of Appeals to unanimously reverse their previous decision. And I'm not going to read the quotes from this other guy, the Schmid guy. Uh, convinced that the law... Okay, he's just... Oh my gosh. Uh, uh, I'm so, so this dude, this per, I'm... I'm assuming, anyway, Schmid, he's going to um, convince that the law's on his side. Schmid says he will file a federal lawsuit to force the city to return the statue to its pedestal. Wow, someone is butt hurt. The city broke the law, so they're going to pay to have it reinstalled, he said. Wow, can you imagine being that fucking upset about, like, a, st- a racist fucking statue and, like, needing it? I can't. Okay. Um, oh, God. Good Lord. And so, okay, we feel pretty confident about our legal standing, said Tom DeKenyi, uh, Director of Cultural Affairs within the Arts Commission. We've worked very closely with the city attorney every step of the way to make sure we have all legal authorities to remove, and we feel pretty good about it. After the truck carrying the statue rolled away, the onlookers gathered in a le- large circle where Didi Ibarra, an Ohlone tribal leader who advocated for the statue's removal, led a crowd in a traditional chant and prayer for empathy and understanding. The mood was celebratory, yet solemn. Many of the onlookers embraced one another, wiping tears from the corners of their eyes. This is what happens when people stand strong and they don't back down, Ybarra said. Anything is possible. Our day is here. Our time has come. Wow. (sighs) (sighs) Okay. So with that, I'm going to take a bit of a music break. We're going to listen to more Victor Hara, and this is from um, August of 1973. And a lot of Victor's songs can be found on uh, YouTube as well if you'd like to listen. And I believe you can uh, find links to purchase his work as well. And we'll be back after this. And uh, it's coming up any moment now, so please do stay tuned. 1977, la familia de Víctor Jara recibió la cinta de un concierto en Perú. He aquí una única oportunidad para ver y escuchar a Víctor Jara. Bueno, nosotros somos porque existe el amor. Y queremos que ser mejores porque existe el amor y el mundo gira, bueno, crea, se multiplica porque existe el amor. Nosotros, a los que nos dicen cantantes de protesta, eh, creemos que el amor es lo fundamental. El amor y la relación del amor de hombre con una mujer, una mujer con un hombre, o del hombre con su semejante, con sus hijos, con su hogar, con la patria, con el instrumento que trabaja, 
es vital, es, es la esencia de la razón de ser del hombre. Por eso que, bueno, no puede estar ausente de la temática de un cantor popular. José Ricardo Ahumada Vázquez, 18 años, casado, una guaguita de seis meses, de pronto sintió que su vida se terminó. Un disparo y liquidó 18 años, una esposa, una guaguita de seis meses. Este obrero de la construcción, este hombre lleno de futuro, podía haber cantado así a su querida cuando iba al trabajo. del barrio pienso en ti cuando miro los rostros tras el vidrio empañado sin saber quiénes son dónde va pienso en ti mi vida pienso en ti amargas y la dicha de poder vivir laborando el comienzo de una historia sin saber el fin cuando llego a la casa estás ahí Agarramos los sueños. Laborando el comienzo de una historia sin saber. Ahora quisiera hablarles a ustedes y cantarles, por supuesto, también canciones de bandidos. Este bandido fue un hombre que incluso pasó 40 días y 40 noches enterrado hasta la cintura en el agua en un túnel subterráneo para que no lo pillara. Logró salvar con vida porque era un bandido que atraía mucho a los demás, logró salvar con vida y posteriormente ya en la superficie 
bajo el sol asiático, oriental, luminoso y brumoso también de Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh logró la unidad de su país y conquistar una patria libre. A ese bandido, a Ho Chi Minh, a la libertad de Vietnam, fin alcanzada esta canción. So I'm playing a video from that's on YouTube of Victor Hara. It's from Augusto, 1973. Uh, and it's a concert, and folks can check out more of that. I'll also be playing it throughout. It's a complete concert. I'll be playing some more of that. It's in from Peru, and I'll be playing more throughout the show. But getting back to some news. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. And if you appreciate this program and would like to donate, if you're able, would greatly appreciate it. There's a Patreon up at patreon.com forward slash 
weekly rev anywhere from a dollar a month onwards would be greatly appreciated. Uh, the first hundred dollars that we can raise will go directly to paying the fees to rent the space here and use the equipment. I've been doing this now since late 2013, and I feel it's super important to provide uh, history of what's actually happened as well as current events from a place that talks about from people's perspective, from workers' perspectives, from perspectives that are not often either heard or believed in by corporate media, and as well as playing music by incredible artists. And when I'm able to appreciate having folks in here as often as I am able to, uh, community organizers, activists, artists, and if you're someone who uh, identifies as one of those things, and or if not more, and would like to be on the show, please do get in touch. That's another way, through word of mouth, we find folks to be on the show. I recognize it's not always easy on a weekday afternoon for folks to come in. If you're able to call in, that's also an option. And really, the shows are better the more folks we have in here. The more voices, the more points of view we have, the better. So encouraging folks, if you're able to, uh, get in contact. Our number here is 415-550-0511 or on Evil Facebook. So feel free to drop a line there. There's a also a Facebook page where I post a lot of news articles and that's facebook.com forward slash weekly rev. I don't have a chance to go through all of them on the program. However, it's one way until Facebook censors all the news sources to at least share a little bit of what's going on. I appreciate sharing the historical context so we understand why we're at where we're at right now again as well as talking about other things that are happening that you might not hear about uh, in mainstream newspapers or other news outlets or ones that want to victim blame such as the man who was murdered in his own apartment by a dallas police officer recently and fox news has to go around and start victim blaming and looking for a reason that this person was killed even though it was the police officer who's been photographed with people giving white power symbols and like other, and also was, <laughs> anyway, it's fucking ridiculous. And police end up killing over a thousand people in the United States every year. And very rarely are they held accountable. And uh, Botham Jean is the name of the person who was killed. So I wanting to also share his name out there. Let's imagine what it's like being killed in your own home. And then having the police officer lie about it, make up stories about it to cover themselves. It's fucking disgusting. <sighs> oh. <sighs> Moving onwards, although it's all connected because we're often talk about state violence here. It's a history. It's a history of this country and it's a recurring theme as a state violence. So for uh, on August 21st, it was the the national and also uh, actually extended up into Canada as well. The prison strike that was commemorating August 21st, the day that George Jackson was killed. And I only heard about George Jackson within the last few years. And I recommend folks, uh, he's written qu quite a bit and has been interviewed a bit. Please do check out his readings, his writings, his readings, uh, and interviews. And he was uh, killed at San Quentin. And so, 
initially this the prison strike was going to go from August 21st to September 9th. However, it's kind of ongoing and it's really bringing attention to the conditions that a lot of folks who are incarcerated live with. And perhaps if there's a time later on in the program, we'll also talk about how Thankfully, there was some pressure put upon prison officials on the East Coast. There was a hurricane happening, and many of the prison officials were like, oh, we're not going to take care of people who are incarcerated. And there's a lot of outcry, and folks, I believe it was in, oh, I want to look this up before I say anything, because I don't want to be incorrect about this. I think it was Virginia and one other state where they decided that they would actually um, help out folks who are incarcerated. Um, it was either North, North Carolina or South Carolina, and I... Uh, again, uh, um, so I think it wasn't going to be in, in South Carolina. I don't know if that's one of the other, one of the, anyway, I don't know for certain. And I also just want to be clear about that. This is all things that I've heard. And I also want to just express that I am a human being and we of course make mistakes and I'm just trying to convey as much information as I know from as reliable sources as I'm able to. And something that I can definitely convey is from the incarceratedworkers.org. I encourage folks to check this out if you know folks who are incarcerated and or have friends who are, odds are you probably do, since there are millions of people incarcerated in the United States. Very few happen to be war criminals. Gee, I wonder why that is. Why is Dick Cheney and Karl Rove and George W. Bush, why are they, uh, most of our ex-presidents, why are they still fucking out there? Donald Rumsfeld. Why are, why are the fucking actual war criminals not in jail and folks who maybe can't pay a, a parking ticket or folks who uh, happen to grow weed or something, something that doesn't hurt anybody, why are they incarcerated? Or folks who maybe have to hurt someone in self-defense or people who are sex workers, something that doesn't have any, there's no fucking victim in this, it's not even a crime, people just trying to fucking exist in a capitalist society. They're incarcerated, yet people who start wars are not. This entire fucking administration People involved with ICE who are fucking locking up kids into cages haven't even fucking gotten there yet on the program. Now I'm yelling. Here we go. How can anyone have any fucking faith in in an institution that's supposed to kind of, kind of like rehabilitate when it's just folks who happen to be trying to exist living under in, in poverty? Why are they incarcerated? Here in California, there are dozens of laws on the books that criminalize people living in poverty or people living on the streets. That somehow, uh, in their eyes, in the court's eyes, that's somehow fucking illegal. Yet you can take away people's health care, you can lock kids in cages, you can bomb other countries, and that's somehow fucking legal here. Not only that, but you get celebrated for it, you get fucking elected into office for that. <sighs> anyway, if you're also pissed off about this, as I imagine that you would be, <laughs> there are ways... Uh, and I, I guess it feels larger than a lot of us because it's been in, in place before any of us were born. There's a lot of money and time and energy involved into keeping things the way they are. However, millions of people throughout time have been trying to undo this to create a world that we want to live in. And it's really fucking hard when it's so many folks, myself included, or sometimes it's just trying to stay afloat, trying to keep a, if we're able to keep a roof over our heads, if we can, trying to find housing, if we don't, trying to have food, trying to take care of each other and ourselves, it's really fucking difficult and they don't make it easy. And that's with a purpose. If we had more time and energy, there'd be, <laughs> those prisons would be burnt down by now for sure. 
but we're under so much fucking pressure and stress to, to stay alive, to keep ourselves alive. That it's really hard to show up for others as much as we would like. I think that's a, a fair statement. That's not to say that things aren't happening and there's a lot of, and with this, what I'm going to read now is, is hopeful in that there's a lot of folks taking action. And if you would like to take action, there are a lot of ways to do so. Did I just say that? Am I repeating myself? Maybe. One way you can become a, a something that I've really enjoyed over the years as a, a pen pal. You can also send books to folks who are incarcerated and in Bloomington, Indiana, which I know is just a random place randomly happened to be there years ago. And there's a organization called pages to prisoners. I think there's many other similar organizations around the country where folks who are incarcerated can write in for books they would like to read and you can send books to them. And unfortunately a lot of jails have and or prisons have certain limitations as the kind of literature you can send and unicorn Riot, I think a while ago did a really awesome video. They did an, there's an exhibition somewhere about banned books from prisons and like certain books that are not allowed in, which are of course sometimes really fucking awesome educational books. It's okay. So that's one way. Also black and pink, which is an organization that uh, specifically contacts or connects folks who are LGBTQI who are incarcerated with pen pals. So they have a list of folks you can write. You can send them postcards. They do the Bay area here. They do monthly, I believe letter writing and postcard writing campaigns so you can find someone you can even just illustrate you can draw they have postcards that are already made and stamped you can even just draw on them color them and send artwork to folks who are incarcerated and really just making contact also one of my favorite things to do is having conversations with people is it really my favorite thing no because i'm an introvert however if you're able to to bring it up in conversation with folks who might not be aware of what's happening because a lot of this is it's repressed for a certain reason and the stories that we have in the mainstream media, it's oftentimes backwards, again, victim blaming. And by locking people up doesn't really solve any of society's issues. Because if that were the case, things would feel a lot better. And I know most folks I know are feeling pretty stressed out right now, not necessarily safer. So yeah, having conversations with people who might not know. Be like, hey, did you know that there's we had that America's leading in uh, the number of people who are incarcerated? That's pretty fucked up. That's a horrible use of resources and it's cruel for people and their families. That's fucked up. People end up worse after being inside and then also dealing with the racism in terms of who is prosecuted against and who the the time people have to serve. It's ridiculous and unjust completely. People are assaulted in, in prison all the time. It's really fucked up. So there's a prison strike, and I've read the demands in the past few shows. Maybe I'll read them again this time. It's very much for folks being treated fairly with, you know, having access to rehabilitation is one thing. And also sometimes they, they charge people to contact others. I'll read them right now. List of demands. I'll keep on reading them. These are the national demands of the people. That's the one thing I changed. I changed people to get the gender out of the conversation here. Uh, people in federal immigration and state prisons. One, immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned people. Two, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Three, the Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their rights. 
for the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. Five, an immediate end to the racial overcharging, oversentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because the victim of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in southern states. Six, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. Seven, no imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of their label as a violent offender. Eight, state prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. Nine, Pell Grants must be reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. Ten, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. So again, you can find this at incarceratedworkers.org. And I'm also going to read an update that's from September 11th from the week four update. Uh, Prison strike updates, week four, and this was posted on September 11th, 2018. Statement regarding the ongoing nationwide prison strike. And they have representatives that you can contact with their information. Again, you can find this at incarceratedworkers.org. You can follow them on Twitter, which is the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, IWOC. And you can find them at at IWW underscore IWOC on Twitter. New confirmed prison action reports. And they have the full list and details below. In Missouri... At least one prisoner on a hunger strike at Leavenworth, USP, in New York. Strike activity at Coxsackie uh, Correctional Facility. Strike activity and boycotts at Eastern Correctional Facility. In Ohio, at least one block engaged in a three-day fast on first days of the strike and a commissary boycott throughout the, at Ohio State Penitentiary, plus a work stoppage in late July in response to preemptive repression by staff. In Texas, more prisoners involved in the hunger strike at Michael Unit. Statement from the prison strike media team. September 9th has passed, but it is up to the people in each prison who are participating in boycotts, hunger strikes, work strikes, or sit-ins. Why am I talking so fast? to determine the right day and time to close out their actions. From the outset, jailhouse lawyers speak and national organizers have endorsed local strikers to set their own end dates or strike indefinitely. With ongoing communication repression, including heightened censorship of mail, lockdowns, and constant searches and seizures of prisoner property, there is undoubtedly a great deal of information on strike activity that has not yet traveled outside. As organizers have said from the beginning of this process, there is a wall of silence around prisons in the U.S., which should itself be of great concern for the human rights of those held inside. Actions to further restrict and surveil contact with prisoners, such as Pennsylvania and Maryland's drug elimination efforts, which curtail access to reading materials under the false pretext of guard safety, would be a huge loss for the already extremely limited freedoms of U.S. prisoners. Repression against strikers by prison authorities continues to be fought with phone zaps and letter-writing campaigns. Reporting on these issues will directly prevent harm to inside organizers, particularly as coverage of the strike itself winds down. The next step for jailhouse lawyers speak is the endorsement of a campaign to pressure politicians to enact legislative change. Both JLS and IWOC will be taking stock of the strike with their members over the coming weeks to consider what other future actions will be necessary to build a movement strong enough to push for the rights of incarcerated peoples. For now, the most urgent tasks 
for anyone following the strike are to continue to push the demands inside and out, highlight ongoing or previously unreported strike activity, and work to prevent or limit retaliation against strikers wherever possible. Incarcerated work organizers never believed that their demands would be met a negotiating table would be met a negotiating table during the past three weeks. It has been a huge success of the 2018 prison strike that the 10 points have been pushed into the national and international consciousness. The work of spreading and fighting for these demands will continue on all fronts until they are actualized and then beyond that onto what JLS aptly calls the dismantling process. As we build a movement toward abolition, Jailhouse Lawyer Speak will be releasing an official statement from inside organizers this week. So again, you can find all this information plus lots more if you go to incarceratedworkers.org. Please check it out. Okay, it's 121. Folks, please do call in 415-550-0511. I'm going to continue playing some more Victor Hara, and we'll be back in a bit. Este es un bandido chiquitito. Un cabrito como decimos nosotros allá en Chile. Uh, cabrito chiquitito de cinco años. Imagínense, es eh, un bandidito, así con la cara sucia, embarradito, ¿eh? que juega con su pelotita de trapo, juega con los perros que andan siempre alrededor de él, un caballo también, porque el papá, el papá trabaja, con una carretela y el caballo, claro, lo deja en la casa. Como no hay mucho espacio, de pronto el caballo está ahí mirando al luchín que juega entre las patas de él. Este es un bandidito chico, pero a lo mejor este bandidito en unos 20 años más o en unos 15 años más va a ser capaz de dirigir una fábrica en mi país. Luchín. Y el 
caballo lo miraba prácticamente 40 años de su existencia a cantar canciones que ella recopilaba, digamos. Las canciones que el pueblo canta a través de toda la geografía de Chile, que canta por tradición, por... tienes tú que se la enseñas de abuelos a padres, de padres a hijos. Y de pronto apareció esto, que causó una conmoción y nosotros sentimos, un grupo de compositores, que ese era el camino que la canción debería tomar en nuestro país. Es decir, un grupo de gente que pensaba que ya basta de música extranjerizante o de música que no nos ayuda a vivir, que no nos dice nada, que nos entretiene un momento y que nos deja tan huecos como siempre. Y, y comenzamos a hacer este tipo de canción. Y justo en el momento cuando los trabajadores en mi país empiezan a unirse en lo que pronto se llamaría la unidad popular y que, bueno, obtuvo el éxito que sabemos en el año 70. Así que fue una canción que surgió de la necesidad total del movimiento social en Chile. No fue una canción aparte de eso. Violeta marcó el camino y por ahí seguimos. Bueno, uno nunca sabe. Okay, so gonna pause this and play a little bit more in a bit. A couple more things. One more historical thing I learned today for the very first time. Uh, so I believe it was in, I think this day, September 14th in, uh, in 1961. And that was in 1961, uh, Patrice 
Lumumba, the prime minister in the Congo's first elected government, was seized, tortured, and murdered by a colonial named Joseph Mobuto. Lumumba was considered the most brilliant of the Congolese leaders. He also spoke out against Western control of the Congo's resources and was thus considered a communist. And there's a little bit more information as well I wanted to read as well, but I hadn't, a lot of this, I feel like the history that we get here is not only one-sided and whitewashed, but we also don't hear about, if we do hear about history or history outside the North America, it's based in Europe often. And so to hear about what's, what has happened in Africa in terms of colonial rule, especially, it's something that is not really taught here. So there's a photo of, of Mobumba that was, um, excuse me, uh, Lumum, excuse me, uh, Patrice Lumumba that was uh, shared today. So I wanted to, um, yeah, share that information because it's a lot of it's new to me and there's a lot that's just not, not shared at all. And, uh, furthermore, also I've also found this from uh, libcom.org, which is like work, they provide like working class history, um, and they they share a lot of like this day in history this happened. So I also want to share a little bit more. Uh, Belgian historians have uncovered compelling evidence showing that uh, Mobutu Mobutu was acting under instructions from the CIA and the Belgian government in 1965. Mobutu himself seized power and, with the backing of the United States, ruled as an absolute dictator until his overthrow by Kabila. Uh, like King Leopold, Mobuto, who renamed this, the country Zaire, ran the economy for his own personal profit and, like the Belgians before him, left the Congo impoverished. So this is just the last few paragraphs of um, uh, an article that they have. It's a very limited text that I'm sharing, but there's a lot, there's a lot more here. Um, from a, a short history of colonialism in Congo from 1885 to 1997. And that was posted um, in 2017. So again, you can find this at uh, libcom.org. A lot of information that I myself did not know. I'm still learning. So yeah, and I apologize that this is just a very limited piece here, but I feel like it's important to to recognize what's happened and also with being uh, someone who lives here in the United States, just recognizing what this, what the government and military does here and their role around the country, around the country, around the world. Oh, goodness gracious. So there's one more, let's see. And um, yeah, so this happened on September 14th, 19, oh, 1960, it says, um, the U.S. who took place in Congo and initially the CIA had planned to assassinate him and then ugh, just awful. So another page that folks can follow is Working Class History on Facebook. They post a lot of information like this. <sighs> also, uh, um, they've also shared that on this day, September 14th in 1970, tens of thousands of General Motors workers were on strike in the U.S., Interestingly, in this instance, management supported the union in launching an official strike in order to let militant rank-and-file workers let off steam, demoralize them, and lower their expectations. And we have a phone call, so let's take that. Hello? 
Hello, you're on the air. Hello. 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 Okay. <sighs> and they have a lot more information. They also have a podcast, so check out Working Class History. It's at Working Class History on Facebook for that information. Also, a report was released, I believe, yesterday, and gotta get to that. Oh, and it's called that Deadly Exchange, The Dangerous Consequences of American Law Enforcement Trainings in Israel. So hope you're all sitting down for this one. Oh, goodness gracious. And I've shared the link on the Weekly Review webpage, so folks, you just uh, enter your email address and you have access to it. And if you, again, if you go to Weekly Review page, which is at uh, facebook.com forward slash weekly rev, you can check out the the information here. I'm going to read down, you can download it, and it was put together by Jewish Voice for Peace, RAIA, which is Researching the American-Israeli Alliance and Dead, Deadly Exchange. I'm going to read some information here. Ah, <sighs> goodness gracious. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty large, uh, long survey, as one would imagine. It's almost 40 pages. I'll read a bit of the introduction, and if folks would like to learn more, please do check it out. To date, thousands of law enforcement officials from across the country have been sent to Israel to meet with military and police forces, and thousands more have participated in conferences, trainings, and workshops with Israeli personnel. Months after 9-11, American law enforcement representatives attended their first official training expedition to Israel to exchange best practices, knowledge, and expertise in counterterrorism. This delegation included chiefs and deputy chiefs of police departments in California, Texas, Maryland, Florida and New York, agents from the FBI, the CIA, and future officers of ICE and directors of security at the MTA in New York City. Participants were schooled in mil Israeli military approaches to intelligence gathering, border security, checkpoints, and coordination with the media, and met with high-ranking officials in the Israeli police and military, the Shin Bet, and the, mil the Ministry of Defense. Since then, U.S. law enforcement exchange programs with Israel have become standard, with hundreds of American law enforcement officials from across the country going to Israel for trainings and thousands more participating in security conferences and workshops with Israeli personnel in the United States. These exchange programs with Israel facilitate the sharing of practices and technologies between U.S. law enforcement and the Israeli military, police and intelligence agencies, and still militarized logics of security into the civilian sphere, normalizing practices of mass surveillance, criminalization, and the violent repression of communities and movements the government defines as threatening, and deepen ties between U.S. and Israel officials to shore up support for a shared security model that justifies flagrant human and civil rights violations. Who sponsors these trainings? In addition to the U.S. and Israeli government agencies and private companies, nonprofit organizations also play an important role in facilitating these joint trainings. These organizations include the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, and the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, JINSA, among others. This report examines how these exchanges with the Israeli military, police, and intelligence agencies reinforce American law enforcement practices of expanding surveillance including comprehensive visual monitoring of in public spaces in, excuse me including comprehensive visual monitoring in public places and online and the heightened infiltration of social movements and entire communities 
justifying racial profiling, marking black and brown people as suspect, particularly Arabs and Muslims, and refining the policies, tactics, and technologies that target communities and social movements that seek racial justice, suppressing public protests through use of force, treating protesters as enemy combatants, and controlling media coverage of state violence. This report argues that while framed as an opportunity for U.S. law enforcement to learn policing strategies from a closely aligned democracy with counterterror experience, in fact, these are trainings with an occupying force that rules a population deprived of human and civil rights. Upon their return, U.S. law enforcement delegates implement practices learned from Israel's use of invasive surveillance, blatant racial profiling, and repressive force against dissent. Rather than promoting security for all, these programs facilitate an exchange of methods in state violence and control that endanger us all. Executive Summary Surveillance Israel is regarded as a global leader in the technologies and tactics of surveillance, and the Israeli government claims its expertise has proven effective in thwarting threats to its security. But by treating entire populations as a security threat, what Israel has in fact perfected is a system of invasive monitoring of all Palestinians in all places with the goal of controlling the entire Palestinian population. During trainings in Israel, U.S. law enforcement delegations meet with Israeli military, police, and intelligence agencies to train in these all-encompassing surveillance tactics and technologies. Through an elaborate military bureaucracy and diverse technologies and policies, Israel monitors, restricts, and infiltrates Palestinians' daily activities and movements in their physical and virtual spaces. The extensive surveillance of Palestinians is made possible by the elaborate system of walls, checkpoints, and permits, which regulates Palestinian movement and a wide range of technologies that attempt to make all aspects of Palestinian life visible to the Israeli military. Israel's use of these technologies is supplemented by informants who are coerced into collaboration with Israel by the Shin Bet through extortion, as well as by infiltration units of the Israeli military deployed to gather information on Palestinian protests and political activity and to carry out arrests and extrajudicial killings. While the U.S. government has long scrutinized people of color and social movements both in the territorial United States and its wars abroad, American law enforcement trainings in Israel have contributed to expanding surveillance practices in the United States. Countering longstanding struggles of civil rights organizations and movements, these joint trainings expose U.S. law enforcement to the comprehensive monitoring and infiltration tactics and technologies in the Israeli arsenal, modeling the apparatus of a sweeping surveillance state. Oh my goodness. So the next page focuses on U.S. policy and Israeli tactics, case studies of exchanges and on surveillance, which uh, visual monitoring and infiltration and corporations cash in. And uh, these exchanges create opportunities for Israeli security corporations that manufacture and market networked surveillance to obtain deals and contracts in the United States. In Baltimore, a camera network for the City Watch program is operated by the Israeli company Nice Systems. Nice Systems and Israeli company uh, Verint also have contracts with the LAPD. Uh, Caleb, it's larger, uh, Celebrate, an Israeli company specialized in technology to collect data from cell phones, has contracts with police departments and law enforcement agencies in at least 20 states. And I'm not reading uh, all of the the entire page from the case studies of exchanges on surveillance. There's also a portion on visual monitoring that folks can check out, as well as infiltration. 
which also brings me to the fact that I would love to have a, a trans uh, transcriptions of episodes of this show. Um, ideally, I would, if I had the time and energy, I would love to do it myself and or had the funds, I'd love to be able to pay someone to do that. So I'm putting that out into the universe. If you're able to donate enough to the show where we could hire someone to do it, I could hire myself to do it. I would love to be able to provide this information for folks who are hard of hearing um, as well as getting translations into other languages. I think that would be fucking awesome. I'm putting that out into the universe. That's a big ask uh, myself right now. I'm volunteering time to do this. Um, however, if I could get more folks on board to help out in some way, that would be great. So putting that out there in the universe, maybe that will happen. That'll be great. Next up, the executive summary on racial profiling. Israel is heralded as a nation that keeps its citizens safe in the face of perpetual threat, but Israel's security regime is designed to subjugate Palestinians and relies on systemic excuse me, systematic racial differentiation between Palestinians and Israeli Jews that constitutes apartheid. During trainings in Israel, U.S. law enforcement delegations meet with Israeli military, police, and intelligence agencies to train in Israeli counterterrorism, which by definition necessitates refining methods of racial profiling. The very structure of Israel's military rule over the Palestinian people and their lands is premised on a racial distinction between Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, in which religion and ethnicity are the basis for determining which legal system is applied. Israeli military rule over the occupied Palestinian territory is run as a counterinsurgency campaign, positioning Palestinians as enemy suspects and defining any opposition to the occupation as a criminal offense, usually terrorism. The Israeli military has complete authority to search, detain, and arrest any Palestinian without a warrant and works with the military court system to prosecute and imprison Palestinians defined by Israel as threatening due to their participation in civic and political life. Within Israel, the definition of criminality is based on distinctions between Israeli and Palestinian citizens, as well as between Jewish ethnic groups. Despite their citizenship status, Palestinian citizens of Israel are subject to systematic profiling, excessive and often lethal use of force deployed with impunity and disproportionate incarceration. Jewish Israelis of Arab and North African descent have long been viewed by the Israeli police as prone to crime and are subject to disproportionate policing and incarceration. Ethiopian citizens of Israel also report heavily, excuse me, also report heavy police presence in their neighborhoods, harassment, arrests without cause, and the denial of due process. Throughout Israel, counterterrorism trainings for American police and security forces, direct parallels are made between the Palestinians and those who are presumed to threaten American safety, bolstering the idea of a U.S.-Israeli alliance against Muslims and Arabs. Israeli trainings in counterterrorism reinforce a highly militarized discourse that calls for institutionalized racial profiling and state violence targeting black and brown communities and social movements that seek racial justice. What American law enforcement learned from Israeli policing is an official policy of marking an entire of marking entire populations as suspect, a model that is in direct opposition to efforts to end the racial profiling that has been constituted constitutive const excuse me uh constitutive in american policing and uh, there's a quote from 45 i don't want to fucking even read um but it's pretty much in support of profiling the next page deals with uh, u.s policy israeli tactics case studies of exchanges on racial profiling including air airport security and the muslim ban and also the bottom is how corporations cash in. So a lot of it's also follow the money. Like not only is this fucking terrible, it's that folks are also profiting off this. 
local uh, Logan, Logan International Airport in Boston was the first of many U.S. airports to contract New Age security solutions headed by the former director of security at Tel Aviv's Ben Gurion Airport to revamp its security system. Logan was also the first U.S. airport to pioneer the Israeli-inspired screening passengers by observation techniques, known as SPOT, program in 2003, which has since spread to airports nationwide. SPOT subsequently subsequently came under fire for being ineffective, wasteful, and facilitating discriminatory racial profiling at airports around the country. Then there's an executive summary on use of force. And I see we got about 15 minutes left in the program, so I want to be mindful of the time we use. They have photographs here. Uh, Next page, U.S. policy, Israeli tactics, case studies of exchanges on use of force, including crowd control technology, quelling the media. Um, Again, corporations cash in. Based on its proven effectiveness against Palestinian protests, particularly in West Bank Village demonstrations against the separation barrier, Israel markets skunk markets skunk to police units worldwide, including departments in the United States. The American company Mistral Security reportedly began selling skunk to U.S. police departments, including the St. Louis Metropolitan Police following the 2014 protests in Ferguson. Mistral Security advertises the product as applicable to border crossings, correctional facilities, demonstrations, and sit-ins. And again, I'm curious. Okay, so skunk is also, uh, it's developed by the Israeli police and manufactured by an Israeli company called OdorTech. So skunk is a foul-smelling liquid designed to cause nausea that is sprayed at high pressure onto protesters where it lingers for days on clothing, skin, and in the air. Uh, Skunk is used by the IDF as a tool of collective punishment that is deliberately sprayed into stores, schools, houses, yards, and fruit orchards of communities whose members participate in demonstrations. And that's under the crowd control technology. And I think looking back, I would have liked to spend more time today on this on this report, and I'll get to as much as I can, because I do want to finish up on time. Coming up next is Women's Magazine at 2, and Common Thread Collective at 3. Next up, uh, the executive summary and conclusion. I'll read this, and then we'll end up the show. Recent encounters of black communities with the police in Ferguson and across the country have led both Palestinian and Black Lives Matter activists to draw parallels between Palestine and the United States, and inspired activist delegation visits and exchanges of means of resistance. These activists build on a rich, rich history of solidarity between U.S. social movements and the Palestinian struggle for liberation. The movement for justice in Palestine and the United States has joined the movement for black lives, the movement at Standing Rock, and the movement for undocumented immigrants and against the Muslim ban to call for racial justice, human rights, and civil liberties for all. The deadly exchange campaign builds on this crucial work to demand that the American government and its violence in the name of security. We hope that local law and local government nationwide heed the calls from communities across Palestine and the United States to help build a world with real safety that we can all inhabit that we can that we can inhabit with dignity so again if you'd like to check this out we've posted it on the weekly review webpage facebook.com forward slash weekly rev and again this is posted by uh, Jewish Voice for Peace and big thanks to Sarah Schulman for sharing this as well I know Sarah contributed to this summary uh, the survey as well and again I'm going to get to the top here to share the, the title with folks who are looking for it Again, in case you're listening to this program in the future and might need to scroll down a little bit on our page to find this. And 
getting to the top here, and that is Deadly Exchange, The Dangerous Consequences of American Law Enforcement Trainings in Israel. All right. On that note, we are going to sign off. Please do stay tuned, though, for Women's Magazine and the Common Thread Collective and comedy and a lot of great programming here at Mutiny Radio. We are going to end off with playing more from Victor Hara. Again, this is Augusto, 1973, uh, complete concert and documentary. You can find this on YouTube. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll be back next week. Ya ustedes escucharon ese luchín o el derecho de vivir en paz. De pronto surgen, es decir, uno no sabe, no lo planifica. Vienen cosas. Pero sí debo decir que cuando yo estuve por allá, por la tierra de Cusco, pareciera que siempre hubo estado por ahí y pareciera que hubiera estado ahí cuando hice esta canción que se llama Plegaria a un Labrador. Levántate y mírate las manos.
para crecer estrecha la tu hermano juntos iremos unidos en la sangre ahora y en la hora de nuestra muerte amén amén Ya cantamos algunas canciones de los que están arriba, algunas canciones de los que están abajo y algunas canciones también para los que están al medio. Pero yo creo que llegó el momento de cantar una canción para aquellos que no están en ninguna parte. En Chile nosotros decimos, tomamos mucho, ¿eh? igual que ustedes, es que ustedes nos enseñaron. Pues. Ustedes nos enseñaron eso de la chichita. ¿eh? Allá la hacemos de uva, nosotros, y también de manzana, ¿eh? y tomamos mucha chicha con limón. Entonces, a las personas esas que... porque la chicha con limón adquiere una cosa que no tiene gusto a nada, realmente. Por eso que a las personas que no tienen gusto a nada, o que no están en ninguna parte, les decimos que no son ni chicha ni limoná. La fiesta ya ha comenzado y la cosa está que arde Usted que era el más quedado, se quiere adueñar del baile Total a los olfatillos no hay olor que se le escape Total a los olfatillos no hay olor que se le escape Usted no es nada, no es chicha ni limosna se lo pasan manoseando, caramba, samba su dignidad. Usted no es nada, no es chicha ni limona. Se lo pasan manoseando, caramba, samba su dignidad. Uja. Por Dios, habiendo tanta cosa buena en el mundo, ¿no? Digo yo. Y hay algunos que se deciden por el bolsillo, no Bueno, allá ellos, digo yo. más fiestoca, primero hay que trabajar y tendremos patoito, abrigo, pan y amistad y si usted no está de acuerdo, es cuestión de usted nomás la cosa va para adelante y no piensa regular usted no es nada, no es chicha ni limona se lo pasan manoseando, caramba, samba su dignidad Oiga, no es nada, no es chicha ni limonada, se lo pasa mano siempre, caramba, samba su dignidad. Ya déjese de patilla, venga a remediar su mal, si aquí debajito el poncho no tengo ningún puñal. Y si siguió siconeando, le vamos a expropiar las pistolas y la lengua y todo lo demás. Usted no es nada, no es chicha ni limona, se lo pasa manoseando caramba, samba su dignidad. Usted oiga, no es nada, no es chicha ni limona. Se lo pasa manoseando, caramba, samba, su dignidad. Mira, hubo un momento, ¿no es cierto?, 
en Europa, en Estados Unidos, cuando surge el término protesta de una juventud que traía la experiencia de la Segunda Guerra Mundial y surge Ponte Tú, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, y, bueno, que cantan una canción pacifista, que cantan una canción esencialmente que critica y denuncia esta sociedad que los ha llevado, me entiendes tú, a casi una ruina moral. Ese término me parece muy acertado entonces. Posteriormente en Latinoamérica empieza la juventud a vibrar más con el acontecimiento social de sus propios países y empieza a rebelarse, empieza a unirse a trabajadores del campo, de la ciudad, para manifestar esta rebeldía y hacerla de, conjuntamente con los trabajadores una especie de protesta del sistema o protesta de lo que se puede decir concretamente de un sistema imperialista que maneja nuestra riqueza y que maneja nuestras vidas en el fondo. Eh, entonces se empieza a surgir en la canción, en, en nuestro continente, un tipo de canción rebelde. Geografía 
Esta canción se llama Te Recuerdo Amanda y es una canción Don't, 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 don't. 